thank you for listening to the World War I Centennial News Podcast. Before we get going today, I wanted to let you know that we just launched a new Twitter handle just for the podcast. So if you have a question, a comment, or want to send a note to Catherine or myself, even address a comment or a question to one of our guests, you'll find us on Twitter at the WW1 Podcast. That's at T-H-E-W-W, the number one podcast. Because it's more than just a show. It's a conversation about the events 100 years ago and today's commemoration of the war that changed the world. This week, Mike Schuster points to the chaos brewing on all ends of this conflict. Dr. Edward Lengel gives us a third story about how the American forces are learning the lessons of combat. Dr. Jay Winter shares his insights on the lasting impact of World War I on the 20th century. Christine Pitsley shares a community-driven World War I commemoration project, a model that's really great for any community to use. Kevin Fitzpatrick and Major Gerald Nichols present the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project awarded for their efforts at New York's Governor's Island. Catherine Akey highlights the commemoration of World War I in social media. Our weekly World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Theo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Now for this episode, our theme is, what else? The 4th of July, 1918. Pulling from the pages of the official bulletin, the Government's War Gazette, published by George Creel, the Wilson administration's propaganda chief, will bring you the official proclamations and speeches delivered by the president and his administration. You'll even hear one that strongly hints at the formation of the League of Nations, a hundred years ago in the war that changed the world. It's the 4th of July, 1918. President Wilson is the guest of honor at an event at Mount Vernon, site of George Washington's tomb. The theme of the day is remembering why America was founded and why those same ideals are what we're fighting for in Europe today. President Wilson opens his address with, I am happy to draw apart with you to this quiet place of old council in order to speak a little of the meaning of this day in our nation's independence. This place seems very still and remote. It is as serene and untouched by the hurry of the world as it was in those great days long ago, when General Washington was here and held leisurely conference with those men who were to be associated with him in the creation of a nation. A bit later, Wilson addresses the reason our founding fathers established the nation. It was so that men of every class should be free, and America the place to which men out of every nation might come who wished to share in the rights and privileges of free men. And so we take our cue from our founders, do we not? We intend what they intended. 
We here in America believe our participation in this present war to be only the fruitage of what they planted. Our case differs from theirs only in this, that it is our inestimable privilege to concert with men of every nation what shall not only make the liberties of America secure, but the liberties of every other people as well. Near the end of a speech, Wilson states the intended results and goals of World War I. There can be but one issue. The settlement must be final. There can be no compromise, no halfway decision would be tolerable, and no halfway decision is conceivable. These are the ends for which the associated people of the world are fighting and which must be conceded to them before there can be peace. 1. The destruction of every arbitrary power anywhere that can separately, secretly, and of its single choice disturb the peace of the world or if it cannot be presently destroyed, at least its destruction to virtual impotence. 2. The settlement of every question, whether of territory, of sovereignty, of economic arrangement, or of political relationship upon the basis of the free acceptance of that settlement by the people immediately concerned, and not upon the basis of the material interests or advantage of any other nation or people which may desire a different settlement for the sake of their own exterior influence or mastery. 3. The consent of all nations to be governed in their conduct towards each other by the same principles of honor and of respect for the common law of civilized society that governs the individual citizens of all modern states in their relations to one another. And four, the establishment of an organization of peace which shall make it certain that the combined powers of free nations will check every invasion of rights and serve to make peace and justice the more secure by affording a definite tribunal of opinion to which all must submit and by which every international readjustment that cannot be amicably agreed upon by the people directly concerned shall be sanctioned. These great objectives can be put into a single sentence. What we seek is the reign of law based upon the consent of the governed and sustained by the organized opinion of mankind. President Woodrow Wilson Speaking at the same event, Felix J. Streichmans of Chicago, the Belgian-born chairman of the Committee of the Foreign-Born, addresses the role of immigrants. 142 years ago today, a group of men animated with the same spirit as the man who lies here founded the United States on the theory of free government with the consent of the governed. That was the beginning of America. As the years went on, and one century blending with another, men and women came here from even the most distant ends of the earth to join them. We have called them alien, but they were never alien. Though they spoke not a word of the language of this country, 
Though they groped only dimly towards its institutions, they were already Americans in soul, or they never would have come here. We who make this pilgrimage are the offspring of 33 different nations, and Americans all. We come not alone. Behind us are millions of our people, united today in pledging themselves to the cause of this country and to the free nations with which she is joined. In my own Chicago, 800,000 foreign-born men and women are at this moment lifting their hands and renewing their vows of loyalty. From coast to coast in city, town, and hamlet, our citizens will be demonstrating that the oath which they took upon their naturalization was not an empty form of words. Yes, and more than that, when tomorrow the casualty list brings heaviness to some homes and a firm sense of resolution to all, we shall read upon the roll of honor Slavic names, Teutonic names, Latin names, Oriental names, and more. They show that we have sealed our faith with the blood of our best, of our youth. And now, here's some short quotes from the various members of the President's Cabinet. Robert Lansing, Secretary of State. This year, the 4th of July, is more than a national holiday. It is an international holy day. While we rejoice over the liberty we achieve for our country, we should consecrate ourselves to the defense of that liberty which is imperiled by Prussian militarism. Newton Baker, the Secretary of War When the Imperial German government undertook to dominate the world by the power of military conquest, it brought a new challenge to the United States of America. We had learned under Lincoln that this nation could not endure half slave and half free. The aggressions of Imperial Germany have warned us that the world cannot continue half slave and half free. Josephus Daniels, Secretary of the Navy The American people have had a fresh baptism of spirit of sacrifice for liberty, which enabled the men of 76 to make the Declaration of Independence the decree of a powerful nation. We've entered this war to aid in ensuring a peaceful peoples, freedom from conquest, and that we will not lay down the sword until the menace of militarism is lifted from mankind. The men who've given their lives on land and sea in this fight will forever shine in the Republic's firmament, and we've highly resolved that they shall not have died in vain. Out of the tragedy of war will come the steady light of peace, guaranteed by a league of all free nations that will illumine the world. These are the inspirations and aspirations coming from the U.S. government to the people of the nation on this auspicious day commemorating America's birth. So as you celebrate your own 4th of July, a century later, just take a moment to think about the world a hundred years ago and how it's transforming in genuinely fundamental ways. The old world, the world that everyone knew, a world of kingdoms and empires is literally crumbling to dust. And the foundation and the seeds of what we experience and think of as the modern world is in this critical life-and-death moment of struggle just to birth and take shape. Think of some of the unfathomable accounts and stories that you've heard here on the podcast that have incredibly somehow gotten masked and disappeared in our collective memory. 
And then just take a moment, just a brief moment of thanks and wish your country happy birthday. Neither the chaos or the struggle are over yet, as we continue with Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, in your post this week, you point to the chaos brewing on all ends of this world conflict. The fights come out of the trenches and into the battlefields. It's roaring in the skies, and even on a stage in the U.S., as a fiery speech of a future presidential candidate earns him a 10-year prison sentence under the U.S. Sedition Act. <laughs> Mike, take it away. Our headlines this week, a provocative anti-war speech, socialist Debs arrested, 10-year sentence for speaking out, a soldier turns philosopher. And this is special to the Great War Project. Fatigue of the war is evident on both sides and much confusion both military and political during these days a century ago in the Great War. According to one American soldier's diary cited by historian Gary Mead, it is now open warfare, movement being carried on irrespective of whether it is day or night. Our batteries line up in the open, firing with practically no concealment. The enemy planes are thick overhead. It is all like a great cinema, constantly changing, constantly moving, cars, trucks, men, horses, airplanes all in a jumble. Observes historian Mead at this stage in France, a German route seemed complete, but this jubilation was premature. The Germans regrouped by the following day. The Doughboys began to learn just how difficult it was, writes Mead, to turn the initial advantage gained by a surprise assault into a full-blown breakthrough. On June 14th, a century ago, writes historian Martin Gilbert, the French used mustard gas on an extensive scale for the first time. The Allies have not declined to use gas weapons before, but certainly not at the comparable level of their use by the Germans. As for non-military developments, there was extensive use of propaganda, most of it false or exaggerated, on both sides. Here's an example. The former U.S. ambassador to Germany writes a book called My Four Years in Germany. It is made into a movie, and according to historian Martin Gilbert, contains gruesome scenes of German atrocities against Belgian prisoners of war. The only problem? Those scenes were shot in New Jersey. At this moment in the war, a fiery anti-war speech by socialist leader Eugene Debs leads to his arrest and a 10-year prison sentence. The master class Debs roared during an appearance in Ohio has always declared the wars the subject has always fought the battles. They have always taught and trained you to believe it to be your patriotic duty to go to war and to have yourselves slaughtered at their command. If war is right, Deb shouted, let it be declared by the people. Within two weeks, according to historian Margaret Wagner, Debs was arrested and indicted under the Espionage and Sedition Acts. He would run for president on the socialist ticket in 1920 from his prison cell. Elsewhere, away from the Western Front, the Germans are taking control. In the East, writes Gilbert, the Germans continue to extend their dominance over large areas of the former Tsarist Empire. On June 12th, they occupy the capital of Georgia, Tbilisi. And by now, Germany has occupied virtually all of Ukraine. A great test of strength, a monumental battle, is shaping up on the Italian front. Ludwig Wittgenstein is among the Austrian troops in action that day. After the battle, he is noted for his heroism and exceptionally courageous behavior. He receives the Austrian gold medal for valor for saving three soldiers buried under artillery blasts. 
Wittgenstein will survive the war and go on to make another mark as a world-famous philosopher. And that's some of the news this week, 100 years ago, from The Great War Project. Mike Schuster is the curator for The Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. And that leads to another segment of America Emerges, military stories from World War I with Dr. Edward Lengel. This is Ed's third story of combat in the late spring to early summer of 1918. Now, these accounts really show how a new U.S. military force is learning and earning its stripes. The segment's called America Emerges, and this series of stories from Ed Langle really shows that. The U.S. 2nd Division's Marine Brigade had captured Belleau Wood. The cost was heavy, but the bravery and resourcefulness of the Marines earned them praise across the world. The Germans called them Teufelhunden, devil dogs. The division's army brigade, consisting of the 9th and 23rd regiments, meanwhile, had played only a secondary role in the conquest of Bella Wood, mostly being deployed further to the east, but now it was their turn. The Marine Brigade had been flung into Bella Wood on June 6 with little time to prepare. The Army Brigade determined to do things differently. When orders arrived for the 9th and 23rd regiments to capture the German-held village of Vaux, Brigadier General Edward M. Lewis assembled his regimental commanders for a detailed session studying maps, intelligence, and aerial photographs. A carefully timed artillery bombardment was prepared, and extremely thorough attack plans were drawn up for the doughboys on the ground. The attack won in during the late afternoon of July 1, 1918. The artillery caught the defending German 201st Division unprepared and poorly dug in, inflicting severe casualties and disorganization. The rolling artillery barrage then moved forward precisely on time, and the doughboys advanced behind it at the planned pace. Dozens of French aircraft roared overhead, coordinating effectively with the troops on the ground to guide accurate high-explosive bombardments. When the two army regiments entered Vaux, they found it wrecked and filled with demoralized Germans who quickly surrendered. Private William Brown of the 9th Regiment remembered what happened after he threw a grenade into a cellar in Vaux. After the smoke cleared away, he said, out came the Fritzies with their hands up, and they kept a coming and a coming until I thought I'd captured the whole German army. There were 20 altogether, and I called out, gun leveled, you know, anyone in this bunch speak English? And one fellow said, sure, I'm from Milwaukee. And I said, well, tell your friends to keep their hands up and march and do it quick. And they marched, believe me, and I took them to camp, and that's all I did. The poor geeks were half starved. One of them had a loaf of the worst black bread I ever saw, and he held on to it, hands up, until we got to camp. And that is how I won my Croix de Guerre. In Vaux, the Army Brigade captured about 500 prisoners and inflicted about the same number of casualties, while taking only about 300 casualties of their own. It was an auspicious beginning for the soldiers of the 2nd Division, but hard tests were yet to come. Dr. Edward Langell is an American military historian and our segment host for America Emerges, Military Stories from World War I. We put the links in the podcast notes for Ed's post and his author's website. This week, our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube released a special episode on the Harlem Hellfighters. Here is the show's host, Indy Nidell, as he introduces the episode. I'm Indy Nidell. Welcome to a Great War special episode about the Harlem Hellfighters. 
They served for 191 days under fire, the longest deployment of any American unit during the war, but never lost a foot of ground, nor had a man taken prisoner. They were officially the 369th Infantry Regiment, based in Harlem, but they're known far better by the name the Germans supposedly gave them, Hellfighters. Take a look at the entire 8-minute piece by searching for The Great War on YouTube or by following the links in the podcast notes. That's it for 100 years ago this week. Now it's time to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. This part of the podcast focuses on now and how we're commemorating the centennial of World War I. In commission news, Bells of Peace, a World War I Remembrance, is a collaborative program that brings the centennial of the armistice to communities and organizations across the nation in a grassroots program to encourage the tolling of bells and the commemorative activities in communities across the United States on Sunday, November 11, 2018 at 11 a.m. local time. Bells of Peace brings attention to the end of the fighting in World War I at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, a hundred years ago. Now with us to introduce you to the program is Betsy Anderson, the Bells of Peace Program Coordinator for the Commission. Betsy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Teo. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Betsy, let me start by asking you to explain the idea of the program. When we first got the idea of the program a few years ago, we reached out and found out that the Society of the Honor Guard of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier first started doing this in 2015. It is such a perfect way to involve communities across the nation in the commemoration of the armistice that we picked up on this idea and now we're promoting it nationwide. As a national program, especially one that reaches into communities, the commission can't do this alone. So who are some of the supporting organizations for this? Besides the Society of the Honor Guard, we have partnered with the National Cathedral. They will be tolling their bell on November 11th as part of a sacred service that is planned for that day. Others are our commemorative partners, our founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library in Chicago, the American Legion, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, and of course, we'll be reaching out to all of our other commemorative partners, as well as our state partners. So we have listeners of all kinds on the show. Who should consider participating? And if somebody's interested in doing that, what should they do? Teo, this program is for everyone. Civic organizations, religious organizations, fraternal organizations, fire departments, state governments, local governments, schoolhouses are some of the organizations that we're encouraging to participate. Every time we sit down, we think of another group that could be involved. For example, the service academies, a National Association of Carillons, which are bell towers across the nation. Everyone can register on our website, and there you'll be able to see ideas and receive updates about how this idea is spreading across the nation. Well, I know it's on a Sunday, but if I were Mrs. Smith's school in Oshkosh, you know, can I participate? Of course. You can participate by organizing a ceremony in your community, 
and we have ideas on our website for what to include in such ceremonies. We've downloaded links to poems and songs from the period of time around World War I. We also have links to performances of taps. Uh, we have bagpipe suggestions. We have suggestions for readings in either a sacred or a secular kind of ceremony. You mentioned you have a bunch of tools for them. Uh, are they on the website? All those tools are on the website. And yes, we are going to be reaching out as far as we can to national coordinators of organizations across the country. We're asking our state coordinators to reach out in their states and counties also. And we're already starting to pick up a few types of organizations that are very enthusiastic about this program. You know, I mentioned to you that I was in San Francisco yesterday, and I, I talked to them about, can they get a proclamation from the city of San Francisco to participate? You have a whole proclamation concept going to help communities commit to this, don't you? That's right, Teo. The commission has issued a proclamation, and we've put the elements of that on our website so that you can create or build your own proclamation just by making a few changes to include the name of your organization and its location. You know, Betsy, every time we've presented this to groups of people, uh, as we put out the initiative, people get very excited because it's simple, it's poignant, it's really easy to do, it doesn't cost anything to get yourself involved. What should people know about this initiative? What else? Teo, the really most important thing that people should know about this initiative is its purpose, and that is to bring communities together. To bring communities together to toll the bells gives us all the time we should take to reflect and remember the fallen. Not only the World War I veterans who served and sacrificed, all of whom have passed away now, but also our current veterans and their families. November 11th is the perfect time to do that. And we want to make sure that everyone gets the word so that their bells can be tolled in a solemn way on Armistice Day. And very important to mention, in case somebody doesn't know this, that Armistice Day, which was the end of the fighting in World War I, also today is Veterans Day. That's right, Teo. And it's one of the few national holidays that did not get changed to a Monday because Congress recognized the importance and the significance of that actual date. Betsy, you're rolling out this week. It's your official launch, right? That's right. We're so excited to have that opportunity, and I hope you'll be able to hear from some of our partners going forward as well. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Teo. Now, we're just getting started, and you can learn a lot more about the program and how to participate by visiting the Bells of Peace website at www.1cc.org bells, by following the link in the podcast notes, or tweet to us at the WW1podcast. This week in our Historian's Corner, we're joined by Dr. Jay Winter from Yale University and the Charles J. Style Professor of History Emeritus. Dr. Winter has a great insight into the cultural impact of our 20th century wars, and he's the author of such books as The Great War and the Shaping of the 20th Century and Sites of Memory, Sites of Mourning, The Great War in European Cultural History. Dr. Winter is also the co-writer and chief historian for the 1996 PBS series, The Great War and the Shaping of the 20th Century, which was awarded two Emmys, as well as the Alfred DuPont Journalism Award, the George Foster Peabody Award, and more. Jay, it's an honor to have you on the show. It's good to be with you. Jay, you've been focusing on World War I since before the centennial. 
How did you come to focus on this time period? I began studying the First World War in 1965 when I was an undergraduate at Columbia University. The First World War struck me as Europe's Vietnam. So it was the contemporary echoes of the war in Vietnam that affected my choice of subject and indeed is part of the explanation for the vast expansion of First World War studies from the 1970s on. Well, now we've talked with a number of historians and others about the many changes that this period brought around. In fact, we've been referring to it as the war that changed the world. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. The technology of information and images was revolutionized. One of the leading revolutionaries was the Kodak company who put in the hands of ordinary soldiers the Kodak vest pocket camera that made it impossible for armies to enforce their regulations that soldiers shouldn't have images of war. They should simply fight and let the propaganda agents take care of that. In some ways, what the First World War did was to open up ordinary soldiers' vision of what war is, including American soldiers, of course, and prepare the ground for the fact that you can't control images. It's the prehistory of Abu Ghraib in Iraq. Fascinating. And Jay, in some of your writings, you're specifically talking about World War I and how it changed the way we mourn our dead. Could you elaborate on that? The First World War produced 10 million dead men, either killed in combat or died in disease. And of those, 5 million have no known graves. It's as true for the American army as it is true for others. War has always been a killing machine, but what 1914-18 did because of artillery was to turn it into a vanishing act. The issue of missing soldiers, soldiers who died but no one has a trace of them, becomes universal in the First World War. It is the birth of the War of the Disappeared. And it's also the moment when a number of different countries all attempted to represent this revolution through creating tombs for unknown warriors. In other words, not people who disappear, but a body that doesn't have a name. And it's those that we honor as an Arlington Cemetery. Well, you're certainly right about that. In the thousands of locales uh, where World War I memorials are around the country, the names of the lost sort of form the central theme for the communities and, and for the memorials. Is that also true in Europe? Very much so. The names are all that really matter. This is a phrase that the British poet, Rudyard Kipling, who lost his son, too, who literally vanished during the Battle of Lucy and his body has never been found. He put that in all of the Commonwealth, initially imperial, but now Commonwealth war graves, cemeteries. Their names shall live it forevermore because there's nothing left. Artillery killed 80% of the men who died in the First World War. It was mechanized assembly line, machine run killing. Four years of war, the biblical message that we all return to dust was relived with a savage irony attached to it. The notion of honoring the dead meant honoring an individual who once walked by your side and who now simply vanished from the face of the earth. In addition to all you've done, you've also were asked to consult on the design for the Historial de la Grande Guerre, a major World War I memorial with multiple locations in France, a really unique design. What were some of the thoughts and considerations during that museum's design process? Well, it was quite something in 1985 to be asked to design a museum. You know, we historians are used to thinking in two dimensions. I actually think in three dimensions about what a museum of the First World War should look like. And what I ultimately came up with was the idea that 20th century warfare needs to have a horizontal axis in order to do justice to the subject. And the reason is soldiers dug trenches to stay alive. But the second reason is this. The language of glory, the language of heroism, 19th century language about war is vertical. 20th century war and the language we use to represent it is much more horizontal. 
think of Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial. That particular design is entirely horizontal, and you can see the advantage. Horizontality is the language of mourning. Verticality is the language of hope and celebration. In Europe, absolutely, you do not celebrate the First World War. You commemorate it. A horizontal design can express commemorating the war much better than a vertical design. Well, as you know, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission is building a World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, it's something that's currently missing in the Capitol. I know you've been following the project because you've commented on it. What do you think of the plans for the National World War I Memorial? I think they're very interesting. And indeed, there are a number of reasons why I think it's absolutely consistent with the change in representation that has taken place in museums all over the world. First is, it's a wall, and what American soldiers did was fill the holes on the Allied side and also pay for them. To have a wall, that's what to do to represent the First World War. Secondly, a wall showing men fighting for each other. And I think the third advantage of having a wall that shows men in combat is to make it clear that the First World War was the first of 20th century wars that didn't do what they were supposed to do. It was the war that made the next one almost certain. I hope funding becomes fully available. The design in question, I fully support. Dr. Jay Winter is the Charles J. Style Professor of History Emeritus at Yale University and the author of numerous books on the cultural impact of World War I on the 20th century. Learn more by following the links in the podcast notes. This week in our updates from the States, we wanted to share a great local project with you, a project that's bringing Connecticut's World War I history from an obscure past into the community's current awareness. With us to tell us about the Connecticut State Library's Remembering World War I project is Christine Pitsley, the project's director. Christine, welcome. Hi, Ted. Your program is structured to work at a really local community level, starting with events at local libraries. Can you outline the program and how it works for us? We have really tried to work, like you said, locally. And we've worked with libraries, museums, American Legion halls, senior centers, community centers, in an effort to bring community members out to tell us their stories of World War I. It's been incredible to work with all of these communities. As we work on planning these programs, the communities get really engaged in telling their story and telling the story of their monument, of their soldiers, of their home front activities. It's been really incredible to watch. How did the program get designed? How did it come about? In 1919, the General Assembly created the Department of War Records here at the State Library and mandated that we collect personal, business, and government history of the war so that people of today and tomorrow would know what Connecticut had done. So we took that and ran with it and said, well, let's go see what's out there. So we did a few pilots in 2014, and the response was overwhelming. We have staff from an NEH grant that we got last year. We have equipment that we bring. We can set up in about 45 minutes and break down in about a half an hour. Five hours we're in and out, and we've collected amazing stories and images. We don't take anyone's stuff. We just scan it and give it back to them. So the equipment you're talking about is scanning equipment and picture-making equipment, things like that? Yeah, we bring two scanners, a huge scanner, so we can do the panoramics and other things like that. We have a camera station that we bring, and we have iPads. All of that recording of information is done mobily. So how many communities has the program been running now, do you think? We have done 42 events. 
in 42 separate communities around the state. One we did in Rhode Island earlier this year that we did with the Rhode Island World War I Centennial Commission. We've been to tiny little towns here in Connecticut and we've done things in cities like Hartford, New Haven. And no matter where we go, we have a great turnout. So how do people that are interested find and access this new digital archive that you've created? Right now, there's not much access. We started something called the Connecticut Digital Archive. We're hoping to have everything up by the end of the summer. We've created somewhere around 450 individual soldier, nurse, Marine, and Red Cross worker stories. And there's about 5,000 individual objects related to those people. And it's not all just Connecticut people. We've profiled soldiers from all over the country as well as England, France, Italy, Germany. So we've got stories from all over the world in this archive. So we're really excited to get it online for everyone. Now, a lot of state centennial organizations listen to this podcast. And do you have any suggestions for how somebody can put together a similar program in their state or their community? Yeah, I mean, they can check out our website. We have a lot of how-to kind of things on there. And we've provided a lot of our paperwork and workflows to other states if they're interested in using our model. We're happy to assist in any way we can. We do have a section where people can submit. So if there's anyone listening that want to have their Connecticut relatives included in this, they can do that online. What did you learn that would be something to strive for or something to avoid when you're doing a program like this? Having realistic goals in what you have the ability to capture is really important. Striving to get every story, which is how I started out, was a little ambitious. We have people come in with boxes of stuff. Having to narrow down what you're going to actually digitize, what you have time to digitize, is a lot harder than I ever expected. So you've been involved in a lot of the things coming in. What scan, project, person, or whatever do you remember the most? Oh, there's been a ton. I think one of my favorites right now was a story that just came in last weekend at an event we did in Ridgefield. Carlton Ross Stevens, he was a corporal in Company C of the 113th Field Signal Battalion. He was a motorcycle messenger who delivered the sectional terms of the armistice to General Pershing. Oh, that's a great story. We've got pictures of him. We've got letters. It's a fun one. Well, Christine, thank you for coming in and telling us about the program. And if they want to contact you, is there stuff on the website that lets them reach out? There is. There is a Contact Us page that will go directly to me. Well, thank you so much, Christine. Thank you for having me on. Christine Pitsley is the director of Connecticut State Library's Remembering World War I Project. You can learn more about the project and the library at the links in the podcast notes. Moving on to our 100 Cities, 100 Memorial segment about the $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on our local World War I memorials. This week, we're headed to a small island just off the tip of Manhattan. Here to tell us about it are Kevin Fitzpatrick, author of World War I New York, a guide to the city's enduring ties to the Great War. Kevin is also the program director for the World War I Centennial Committee for New York City. And Major Gerald Nichols, an active duty Army officer currently assigned to the School of Advanced Military Studies at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. 
We've spoken with Kevin before about his participation in an organization of reenactments, the history of Governor's Island, and more. You can hear one of the interviews in episode number 29. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tim. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. So, Kevin, let me start with you. Since the last time we talked about Governor's Island, our podcast audience has more than tripled, so uh, most of them haven't heard the parts and pieces before. Could you give us a real quick overview of the island and its history? Governor's Island is in New York Harbor. It's 700 yards from Manhattan, and you pass it whenever you take the ferry to Liberty Island or Staten Island. And it was an army post for more than 200 years, then a Coast Guard station for 30 years. And for the last 15 years, it's been a public park. I was drawn to it for its World War I connections about a dozen years ago when I started visiting it to research my book. And I was really drawn to it, Teo, because it really reminded me of places I saw when I was in the Marine Corps. And so seeing all these World War I memorials, as we got closer to the centennial a couple of years ago, there were some that were missing, there were some that were damaged. And so that became the Governor's Island World War I Memorial Project that I headed up and which was part of the 100 Cities 100 Memorials Grant. Once the memorial project got underway, we thought about the rededication ceremony. They're all tied in to 16th Infantry. It wasn't just about the things tied into Governor's Island, like when General Pershing sailed for Europe, he left from Governor's Island. You know, Governor's Island played a key role in the resupply of the troops during World War I. So I originally was going to do the rededication with just reenactors. I'm a reenactor. We have an annual World War I weekend. But when Major Nichols found out about it, he said that Dave might be interested in coming out. So that kind of was amazing to me that here I was with reenactors in the fake army, and now the real army wants to come to the island. Major Nichols, what was your involvement in the project? I was at the time assigned as the executive officer of 1st Battalion, 16th Infantry. And the 1st Battalion, 16th Infantry had been stationed on Governor's Island from approximately 1922 to about 1941. So as the final remaining active duty unit, we kind of started working with the commission with doing a rededication ceremony. The 16th Infantry was founded in 1861 as a regular army unit. But by about 1916, the regiment was stationed in South Texas and had been part of the punitive expeditions when they get word that America's finally entering the war. They draw the three battalions to full strength of about 3,500 to 4,000 men, and they depart Hoboken, New Jersey, as part of what General Pershing dubs the 1st Expeditionary Division, later the 1st Division, and then later still known to this day as the Big Red One. So in about June of 1917, the division arrives in France. The 2nd Battalion of the regiment is then paraded through Paris very famously on July 4th, 1917. July to August, men are training. Finally, the regiment finds themselves near Bathlemont, France. The Germans kind of get wise to that American soldiers are finally near the lines. The Germans take it upon themselves to test the Americans' combat skill. 2nd Battalion, including Company F of the regiment, finally goes up to the lines for the first time the night of November 2nd. On that evening, a German element from the 7th Bavarian Landwehr Regiment executes a very well-planned raid. Company F is isolated by a box barrage. A raiding force of 200 Bavarians get into the trenches. The Germans' main intent is to capture American prisoners for publicity reasons. And here's where we find the first three combat casualties of the U.S. force in World War I. We have Private Thomas Enright from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Private Merle Hay from Glidden, Iowa, 
and their squad leader, Corporal Bethel Gresham from Evansville, Indiana. The Germans were intentionally trying to brutally kill these men in a manner to try to shock the American soldiers. Posters of these three men's faces go up. They're called the first three, and we finally see a lot of the war effort solidify. Those three men have three roads dedicated to them on Governor's Island. In 1928, the 16th renamed all the roads and all the docks for the men of the 16th. Two of them, Enright and Hay, were missing. So we worked to restore those plaques and those road signs to Governor's Island. Last September, September 15, 16, we did a two-day ceremony with the 16th that came in from Fort Riley with 40 reenactors and 12 active duty soldiers that came in for the rededication. And it was really, really heartwarming and very, very well planned. We had General Pershing on his horse. We had a band. We had a drunken bugle corps. We had a couple hundred people from the public attend. So it was a very, very poignant and touching ceremony. And I was really, really proud to have the Big Red One come back to Governor's Island after all those years away from it. That's a great, great story, gentlemen. Well, congratulations on having the memorials designated as World War I Centennial Memorials. And also, you've been working really hard to remind New York of the island's significance in general. Congratulations. I think Governor's Island is the most important World War I memorial in New York City. And as we get closer to the centennial of Armistice, there's more events tied to that. Kevin, are you going to do another reenactor event on the island this summer? Yes, thanks for asking. The third annual Camp Doughboy will be September 15, 16th. It's free. It's the largest free public World War I event in the country. We'll have more than 100 reenactors, vehicles, horses, dogs, and pigeons on the island this year. <laughs> so, any other plans for the armistice itself? I think Major Nichols and I will be on Fifth Avenue at the 11th hour, the 11th minute, on 11-11 in the Veterans Day Parade. It's the biggest Veterans Day Parade in the country. We'll have 100 reenactors and active duty members, it looks like, in uniform to lead the parade. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining us and telling us the story. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we'll see you on the sidewalks of New York on November 11th. Looking forward to it. Thank you, gentlemen. Kevin Fitzpatrick is the program director for the World War I Centennial Committee for New York City, and Major Gerald Nichols is an active duty Army officer. Learn more about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program and the amazing Governor's Island by following the links in the podcast notes. And now for our weekly feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore the words and phrases that are rooted in the war. So, World War I wasn't like any other conflict before it. The scale was unprecedented. World War I involved every aspect of the combatant nation's human, national, and production resources, which leads us to this week's speaking World War I phrase, war effort. The term war effort defines the unprecedented commitment from an entire society, the mass conscription of millions into duty, a civilian population and industries fully converted to producing the goods for the war. The combatant nations mustered every available resource, human and material, and directed them towards a singular goal. England's newspaper, the Manchester Guardian, coined the new phrase in describing this collective national endeavor to defeat the enemy. War effort became widely used on both sides of the Atlantic, encapsulating a new paradigm of international conflict. War effort, describing what was no longer the domain of armies, but the complete commitment of nations, and our phrase this week for speaking World War I, 
We have links for you in the podcast notes. This week in Articles and Posts, where we highlight the stories brought to you by our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. Headline, National History Day Award Prizes for World War I-themed student projects. This year's National History Day contest was special for the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission because for the second year in a row, we were able to sponsor special prizes for student projects based on World War I themes. Headline, Sagamore Hills commemorates Quentin Roosevelt and World War I with exhibits and programs. 100 years ago, on July 14, 1918, Quentin Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt's youngest child, was killed in action. This summer, the Sagamore Hills National Historical Site will present a temporary museum exhibit and programs to commemorate the centennial of Quentin's death. Headline, this week's Wright Blog, Hill 145, the winner of Consequence Magazine's 2017 Prize for Fiction. How has agony been rendered so gracefully? This is the question asked by the narrator in Ruth Eggett's short story, Hill 145, as he gazes up at a World War I memorial. Headline, This Week's Story of Service Features Catherine Rose Kreutzer. Submitted by Mary Rohr Dexter, This Week's Story of Service tells of Catherine Rose Kreutzer, a native of Ohio who served as an Army nurse in World War I. Finally, our selection from our official World War I Centennial Merchandise Shop. Did you know we have an official 3-foot by 5-foot World War I Centennial flag? The Made in the USA Nylon flag features the iconic Doughboy silhouette digitally screened onto it. Links to our merchandise shop and all the articles are in the weekly Dispatch newsletter. Subscribe at www.cc.org slash subscribe. And you can also tweet to us at the WW1 Podcast and ask us to send you the link. Or just follow the link in the podcast notes. So that brings us to the buzz. The centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what do you have for us? Hey there, Teo. We shared an article from Stars and Stripes this week with some exciting news. France and Belgium are urging UNESCO to designate dozens of their World War I memorials and cemeteries as World Heritage Sites. The UNESCO panel that will assess this request is meeting this Sunday, July 1st, so keep an eye out for more news about it. A link to the article is in the podcast notes. Also this week, we were able to share on Facebook some really amazing post-war film footage from Paris. You can see French poilus, or infantrymen, marching through the streets, and you're taken on a tour of the prettiest parks of the city. It's a wonderful historical view of the city and the peacetime life led there in the years just following the conflict. Finally, a little follow-up on a story we talked about on The Buzz a few weeks ago. The two Frenchmen who restored a World War I-era Harley-Davidson have been touring it across the United States for the past couple of weeks, and now they've launched an Instagram account so you can follow their journey as they drive this wonderful historic machine across the U.S. Links to all of these stories are in the notes. And that's it this week for The Buzz. And that wraps up episode number 78 of the World War I Centennial News Podcast. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our show's guests. Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog. Dr. Edward Lengel, military historian and author. Dr. Jay Winter, Yale University professor of history. 
Christine Pitsley, Director of Connecticut State Library's Remembering World War I Project. Kevin Fitzpatrick and Major Gerald Nichols from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project at New York's Governor's Island. Catherine Akey, World War I Photography Specialist and Line Producer for the podcast. Many thanks to Mac Nelson, our talented and hardworking sound editor, and World War I Centennial Commission intern, J.L. Michaud, for his great help. I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago to today's teachers and their classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast can be found at our website at www.cc.org/cn. That's Charlie Nancy, where you can also access an interactive transcript of the episode, ideal for students, teachers, and writers. You'll find World War I Centennial News in all the places you get your podcasts, and even using a smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. And more and more people seem to be listening to the show on YouTube. The podcast Twitter handle is at the WW1 Podcast. The Commission's Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. Goodbye, Ma. Goodbye, Ma. Goodbye, Mule, with your old hee I may not know what the war's up down, but you bet, by gosh, I'll soon find out. Oh, my sweetheart, don't you fear. I'll bring you a king for a souvenir. Get you a tongue and a kaiser, too. And that's about all one fellow could do. Okay, here's your closing groan for the 4th of July. Where did George Washington keep his rats and his mice? Why, at Mount Vernon, of course. <laughs> so long. <laughs>